Well, welcome everyone this evening to St. Michael's Cathedral for our experience of Lectio Divina preceded by Vespers. Also welcome to our friends who are watching through the salt and light. So welcome one and all. We will be continuing uh, this evening praying over the, the great book of Sirach, the Liber Ecclesiasticus, the church book. And it is the church book because it was used uh, by the early church to uh, help people to understand more and more about how to live day by day. In the New Testament, the main book for that is the letter of James. And I've often thought when I was uh, hearing confessions in the past, and I think of it today, have a little stack of brochures you can get from the Bible Society uh, with the letter of James. And it might suggest to a penitent, go and read the letter of James, because it has many of these very practical things about speech and about relationships with others. And that's what we find in Sirach, especially the passage which we'll be looking at today. So now let us enter into a spirit of prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's let go of all of those cares and troubles that so clog up our minds. All the busyness, all the noise, so that we may hear the word of God who comes to us not in thunder and lightning, but in a gentle breeze. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Almighty God, remove from us the barrier of sin, which blocks the pathway to our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Do not set your heart on your wealth, nor say, I have enough. Do not follow your inclination and strength walking according to the desires of your heart. Do not say, who will have power over me? Or who will bring me down because of my deeds? For God will surely punish you. Do not say, I sinned and what happened to me? For the Most High is slow to anger. Do not be so confident of atonement that you add sin to sin. Do not say, his mercy is great. He will forgive the multitude of my sins. For both mercy and wrath are with him, and his anger rests on sinners. Do not delay to turn to the Lord, nor postpone it from day to day. For suddenly the wrath of the Lord will go forth, and at the time of punishment you will perish. Do not depend on dishonest wealth, for it will not benefit you in the day of calamity. Do not winnow with every wind, nor follow every path. The double-tongued sinner does that. Be steadfast in your understanding, and let your speech be consistent. Be quick to hear, and be deliberate in answering. If you have understanding, 
answer your neighbor. But if not, put your hand on your mouth. Glory and dishonor come from speaking, for man's tongue is his downfall. Do not be called a slanderer, and do not lie in ambush with your tongue, for shame comes to the thief and severe condemnation to the double-tongued. In great or small matters, do not act amiss, and do not become an enemy instead of a friend. For a bad name incurs shame and reproach, so fares the double-tongued sinner. Do not exalt yourself through your soul's counsel, lest your soul be torn in pieces like a bull. You will devour your leaves and destroy your fruit and will be left like a withered tree. An evil soul will destroy him who has it and make him the laughingstock of his enemies. Let's just spend a little quiet time thinking of that whole passage. What does it say to my head, to my heart, to my hands, to my head to give me greater understanding, to my heart to make me more loving, to my hands to tell me what I should do? Lord, show us the way. Do not set your heart on your wealth, nor say, I have enough. That's what we can do so often. We become to satisfy in ourselves. I have enough. Remember the parable that the Lord tells of the, the man who wanted to build more big barns to store all that he has? To set our heart on our wealth. And then the Lord says that very evening his soul is demanded of him. You fool, your soul will be demanded of you this very evening. Do not set your heart on your wealth, nor say, I have enough. And the wealth here can be money. It can be money in the bank. It can be the wealth, whatever we depend upon, whatever we find as our source of consolation and strength that is not God. All those things we rely upon, those false pillars and props that we put around us, which are not really sensible. They are not, in fact, dependence upon the Lord. And we can all, in different ways, a person who has very little money in the bank can put a lot of strength in something that is not of God. And we all have to think about that. Do not set your heart on your wealth. Where our heart is, that's where we are. Nor say, I have enough, I'm in control. I don't need anything, I don't need God, I don't need other people, I have enough. When we enclose in upon ourselves, that's when we get in trouble, whatever causes that. Whatever helps us to, leads us to become self-referential. It's one of the great struggles and difficulties of our life in these days, and indeed, right back to the days of Sirach. Let us ask the Lord to help us to recognize our need to depend on God and on one another and not to be falling in on ourselves. Do not set your heart on your wealth nor say, I have enough. 
Do not follow your inclination and strength, walking according to the desires of your heart. We all have our inclinations and strength. This may not be wealth. This may be other things. And Sirach was dealing at a time when people were very, very much caught up in the uh, power of Greek philosophy and Greek technology and all that. You're coming into the Hebrew world in which uh, Sirach and his people were living. And so a lot of people were finding all kinds of ways to follow their inclination and their strength and uh, walking according to the desires of their heart rather than being open to the will of God. Do not say, who will have power over me? Or who will bring me down because of my deeds? For God will surely punish you. Whether it's wealth, the inclination of our own strength, the desires of our heart, they all come back to who will have power over me? Who will bring me down because of my deeds? We can become so very much unaware of our need for mercy because we think we're in control. And the illusion of control is one of the most deadly realities we face. Do not say, who will have power over me? Who will bring me down because of my deeds? For God will surely punish you. We are accountable. We are not on our own. We are not masters, only God is the master. We are simply stewards of the time he has given to us and of the gifts he has given to us. They're not meant to become for us props that make us independent of God or of other people. They're not meant to be things that make us feel self-sufficient and self-referential. We are simply servants of the Lord and need to be sure we don't get carried away by our own ego. Do not say, who will have power over me? Who will bring me down because of my deeds? For God will surely punish you. Responsibility and accountability are what give meaning and focus to our life. And let's ask God to help us to see that so that we recognize we are accountable for the use of the gifts which he has given us. They are to become not sources of self-referential ego, but rather to be gifts to be used for the service of other people. Do not say, I sinned. Now what happened to me? For the most high is slow to anger. You know, I got away with it. Nothing happened. And we think that, you know, I can just keep on going in that way, ignoring God and neighbor. Do not say, I sinned and so what? What happened? I'm fine. For the Most High is slow to anger, rich in mercy, abundant in kindness, slow to anger. We have time in this world given to us so that we may come to a deeper understanding of our need for God and so that we may come and have time for repentance. But we need to recognize that time is short. We don't have a whole lot of it. And as the years go by, boy, that becomes more and more clear. 
And so we should value the time we're given, not take it for granted. We should use that time to ask God's mercy, to grow in grace, to become more fully an instrument of his grace. Do not say I have sinned and what happened to me for the most high is slow to anger. Do not be so confident of atonement that you add sin to sin. As in the Psalms and in Hebrew poetry, what the sacred writer does is say one thing and then say it again in a different way and then again in a somewhat different way. We notice what Sirach is doing here in this. It's like a diamond with a beautiful message, a beautiful beauty to it. And he turns and he looks different ways, this way and that way. And in those different ways, we see different insights into the mystery of life. And so as we have heard, don't simply think, well, I got away with it, so I'm fine. We also don't be so confident that when the Lord does come, that we will be fine. Just add sin to sin because I haven't been caught yet. And do not say his mercy is great. He will forgive the multitude of my sins. For both mercy and wrath are with him. And his anger rests on sinners. This is uh, very important for us to think about. In the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we hear about the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God does not mean that God loses his temper because I don't think God has the temper to lose. It isn't that God sort of, sort of flails around. The wrath of God in both the Old and New Testament refers to his justice. Anger is a bad thing when we're caught up in yelling at people or we're caught up at hurting others or we're overwhelmed by an inner feeling of bitterness. But there are some things that are wrong that even humans need to be rightfully angry about because there is injustice and justice must be done. And so when we hear of the anger, the wrath of God, it, it has to do with justice. And justice and mercy are together like concave and convex. If we have justice without mercy, we have harshness and fear. If we have mercy without justice, then we have the kind of attitude we see earlier on in this passage. We think that God just simply doesn't care, doesn't respect us, doesn't take us seriously enough to expect of us that we follow his way. And so the two of them must go together. Do not say his mercy is great. He will forgive the multitude of my sins. For both mercy and wrath are with him. And his anger rests on sinners. His justice rests on sinners. Death, judgment, heaven, hell. We have the four last things and all of them go together. That's why I think of uh, the scene, the great, greatest artistic rendering of that is found in the Sistine Chapel. And whenever the, the cardinals are voting for Pope, you look up at the heaven and hell, the justice, mercy, and justice together. And uh, the prayer that you say when you're voting for Pope is, 
in the presence of the Lord Jesus who will judge me. I say that the one I'm voting for is the one I truly believe should be Pope. I think I mentioned before, there's, I've seen a picture of another last, not a last judgment scene, but it's a scene where it's, no, there's no justice. It's sort of, it's cut out. And the mercy then becomes meaningless if it is not, if it is simply floating around as a kind of a vague thing without any substance of truth to it. Love and truth, clarity and charity, mercy and justice. These are essential and they are not real without one without the other. Let's ask the Lord as we reflect upon these, this passage that we may come in this passage particularly, we need other ones where we need, where we stress is very much more the mercy of the Lord and that's what we need. But sometimes we take that too much for granted so we need the other emphasis. That's why you never take a piece of scripture on its own out of context. So this stresses the justice along with the mercy. Sometimes we stress the mercy without the justice. So this is this piece. We ask the Lord to help us to repent and to have a sense of his justice. Do not say his mercy is great. He'll forgive the multitude of my sins for both mercy and wrath are with him and his anger rests on sinners. O oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins. Save us from the fires of hell and lead all souls to you, especially those who are most need of your mercy. Do not delay to turn to the Lord, nor postpone it from day to day. For suddenly the wrath of the Lord will go forth, and at the time of punishment you will perish. I'm very much in favor of procrastination. I'm procrastination. Um, I remember once giving a, a seminar to the um, students I was teaching on study habits, how to be on time and everything, and all the eager students showed up. But the ones who weren't so organized uh, forgot about it and were going to do it another day. So this is a thing we can't procrastinate, saying, well, you know, I'll get to repentance at some time in the future. There's a great uh, prayer we often say in our Catholic tradition, from an, a sudden and unprovided death, O Lord, deliver me, spare me from that. As we never know, time's up, we never know. And so to simply drift along and say, you know, I'm fine. We see many parables about this. You know, we'll just wait. The Lord will never come. The master will taking, is taking his time and returning. Therefore, I can just sort of beat the other slaves and do things like that. No, we have to each day be ready to meet the Lord. My bags are packed. I'm ready to go. That's the attitude of the Christian, to be ready to meet the Lord Immediately, the Lord is coming soon. And then if we have another day, we do it the same way the other day. And if 50 more years, fine. But every day, each day, we need to be ready to meet the Lord. That's like that prayer you see very often in sacristies. It's just really beautiful. Priest of God, celebrate this mass as if it were your first mass, as if it were your last mass, as if it were your only mass. There we are. So every day, if we could just do that, to live each day ready to meet the Lord, we would never 
regret the past or fear the future. It's what we pray in our most common prayer. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. It's the sacrament of the present moment. Live now because the future hasn't happened in the past we can't change. But don't be putting things off because what we, the future may not come. So do not delay to turn to the Lord or postpone it from day to day. For suddenly the wrath of the Lord will go forth and at the time of punishment you will perish. Let's ask the Lord now to help us to have a sense of holy urgency. That we don't just dawdle along, but we say, here I am, Lord, I come to do your will now. So that I may be ready for the hour of my death, whenever it is. Do not depend on dishonest wealth, for it will not benefit you in the day of calamity. He goes back again to that theme, that this now, not just wealth, which was the first one, honest wealth, don't depend on that either. But certainly don't depend on dishonest wealth, obviously. It's not going to help you when the Lord knocks on the door. It's not going to help. Do not depend on dishonest wealth, for it will not benefit you in the day of calamity. Do not winnow with every wind, nor follow every path. The double-tongued sinner does that. You know, in, uh, it's a reference to the techniques they have of farming where they would, you know, throw up the, the grain and the chaff and the wheat and all that, and uh, the wind would whoosh, blow away the chaff, leave the wheat behind. That's the winnow in the right way, but you have to think it through. You don't, if there's a big storm coming, you don't go winnowing that way. It's just like a, thinking of wheat and chaff, is that's what an editor does. Uh, one of the witty Americans, I think it was Mark Twain or Mencken or someone said, the role of an editor is to separate the wheat from the chaff and to print the chaff. But I don't think that's quite what uh, is being talked about here. Do not winnow with every wind. Think it through. Don't follow every path here or there. It's like, uh, I think it was uh, Stephen Leacock said, he went out the door, hopped on the horse, and rode off in every direction. I mean, we got to be a little, think it through. Life is too important to kind of just blunder around. Don't winnow with every wind this way or that way, or the wind blows back in your face or whatever. Be more sensible. Or follow every path. If we follow every path, what are we going to do? We don't know where we're going. Stop, look, listen. It's just like, you know, the most foolish strategy writing an exam. If you have three hours, just to spend two hours and 59 minutes thinking of all the different questions, which one will you answer? Just focus, do it. We're not called to do the best we can. We're called to do the best we can in the time we have. And then I used to say to students, hand it in then, <laughs> time's up. And that's stressed very much in this, the focus of the shortness of time. Lord, teach me the shortness of life that I may gain wisdom of heart. That's from the Psalms, and it's very much what's being said here. Don't winnow with every wind, don't follow every path, here, there, everywhere. 
The double-tongued sinner does that. The sinner who is sort of, you know, saying one thing here, oh, I go this way, then another thing here, back and forth, because there's nothing inside. There's no there there. If we have nothing, no guiding ballast, no depth, no principle that guides us, that steers us the right way, then we'll go this way and that way because there's nothing to guide us. We just simply flip all over the place, bouncing around. And that's no way to live a life. It's foolish, but it's also very deadly to do that. The double-tongued sinner to one person, oh, this, this, another person, something else. Totally contradictory. Purity of heart is to will one thing. That's so true. To be focused. A heart that is pure is not divided. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless, divided till they rest in you. So don't be like a double-tongued sinner, winnowing with every wind and following every path, because the double-tongued sinner doesn't know where the real path is. We need to think it through and study it and reflect. Help me, O Lord, not to be fickle. May I have the depth of understanding to follow your will day by day and not just bounce around all over the place, wasting the precious gift of time so rare, so limited, that you have given to me in this present moment. Be steadfast in your understanding and let your speech be consistent. Again, he turns the diamond for another facet of the same basic idea. Be steadfast in your understanding. Have something deep that guides you. Steadfast. Not flipping around all over the place. Steadfast. Deep. It's those virtues which are often not very spectacular, but which are important. Steadfastness. Fidelity clarity. Those are things which take us beyond ourselves. When we're caught up in our own ego and don't recognize the forces outside of us, the will of God or the law of nature, then we are just bouncing around according to where my whim and fancy takes me, winnowing with every wind. But be steadfast in your understanding. Don't be just sparkling but shine with a light that is deep and clear and gives life. Let your speech be consistent. Don't be double-tongued. Consistency is a very great value. It's a bit boring because if we have variety all the time, oh, that's great. That's entertaining for a moment, but it's soon... We soon tire of that. What do we want in a friend? And friendship is the next part of Sirach. 
the next section right after this. What do we want? We want a consistent person who's consistent in their friendship. What do we want? What is wanted in a spouse? Someone who is consistently loving with fidelity over the long haul. Be steadfast. What do we want in someone who is working in any type of endeavor? Be steadfast, consistent, day after day. Somebody once said it's the Cal Ripken principle of sanctity. Show up every day. <laughs> Doing that day after day after day. It's like the, there's a great, the great writer, Anthony Trollope. And he was consistent, a, point, a, a consistency that astonishes me. He, he, he wrote 37 novels and I don't know, 20 or 30 other books in his spare time while he was also the third in command of the British Post Office. He did all these, but he was consistent. Every day, he got up at five in the morning, got a cup of coffee, even he needed that, and then put his watch on the desk and started writing 250 words every 15 minutes until about 7.30 or so. Then he stopped, had his breakfast, and went to spend the rest of his day working in, in his day job. And he did that day after day after day. And he said something, I wish I could remember the exact words, but my memory is kind of going on this, but it's something like a steady productivity will defeat any time a, a kind of sporadic Hercules who does great things once or twice. I know that's what really impressed me with my, my hero when I was a teenager, Father John Newstead. He, it isn't just that he would visit the sick, which is a good thing to do, but he did it every single day. And in my teenage heart, that really impressed me. Not only the goodness, but the consistency. We want consistency. So be steadfast in your understanding and let your speech be consistent. Be quick to hear and be deliberate in answering. So listen, <laughs> two ears, one mouth. That's the proportion. Quick to hear and really hear, listen. What is being said? Because isn't it so easy when we're listening to someone to be thinking of what I want to say in reply and I don't really listen to what's said because I'm already preparing my answer? Then how can I know what they're saying? This is a remarkable ability to be able to be quick in hearing, but then slow down, be deliberate in answering. It's sort of like a model, that the thing that I, I always find is it's a, very, it's a good idea from carpentry, you know, measure twice, cut once. Take your time, deliberate in answering. This is very hard if you have a, you know, iPhone or Blackberry and all that. One of the problems we have in modern decision-making and people are doing it with those things is, boom, a message goes out. Boom, a message is respected, expected back immediately because we know we can do it. And so we expect it, boom. There's a lot of lack of deliberation. That's also why the famous saying, pause before you hit the send button is very important. Be quick to hear. Pause. Be deliberate in answering. And also have an editing angel on your shoulder. Because often what you want to answer, first thing, is not very wise. 
It's good to have someone saying, no, no, this whisper in the ear. Do you really want to say that? Let's sleep on it. Nothing, there's no great loss if we take time to, to be deliberate in answering. But there's a lot that is lost if we zip right back. You know, we, haven't, we never regret, or very rarely regret what we didn't say, but we often regret what we said too quickly. So be quick in hearing, but deliberate in answering. So many battles would be avoided if we could be a little more careful about that. And I think if it's answering in terms of typing or sending a message on the internet, if it seems to be particularly effective and glorious what you're pounding out, especially delete it and then hold back. There's a very famous uh, story of Abraham Lincoln. It was a very foolish general in the Civil War. There were a lot of foolish generals in the Civil War. But Mr. Stanton, who was the head of the War Department, he knew of a particularly bad one. And so he read out a letter that he was going to send to this general saying, what an idiot you are, what a fool, what a, he was gonna send this off. And as he read it out to President Lincoln, Lincoln said, good point, yes, yes, you're right, absolutely. He is foolish, he made a mistake, he shouldn't have done that. And so Stanton was saying, very good, oh, the president agrees. So he licked the thing, put a stamp on it, and Lincoln said, what are you doing? Well, I'm gonna send the letter. Oh no, rip it up, rip it up. Get it out, but don't send it. Be deliberate in answering, don't send it. It's also true, Lincoln himself, at the Battle of Gettysburg, General Meade basically defeated General Lee, the Confederates, and they were running away, and the river behind them rose up, and they couldn't get away. And General Meade could have won the Civil War that day, because the enemy was defeated and couldn't escape. But instead, he thought, he waited, he rested, he and then the river went down and the enemy escaped. And Lincoln himself wrote a letter saying basically, you idiot, you could have ended the Civil War. <laughs> Why didn't you attack? And they found that letter in his desk drawer after his death. He didn't send it wisely. So in so many ways, be quick to hear and be deliberate in answering. If you have understanding, answer your neighbor. But if not, put your hand on your mouth. And so sometimes we do have understanding. We maybe should be deliberate in answering because the way we say it may not be helpful. So let's not hurry, even if we're right or we have understanding. But if you have understanding, we might be able to help. Our speaking might be of benefit. So answer your neighbor. But if not, if you don't understand the picture of what's going on, put your hand on your mouth. And sometimes it's not that we're wrong exactly, it's that we just don't have a very wide vision our understanding may be rather narrow, so we just don't understand where other people are coming from. Our own vision is rather narrow. And that can happen, public figures can do that. They can speak uh, rather flippantly about the beliefs of others and then, but they don't understand, they haven't really gotten into what's behind the way other people are thinking. 
but are op operating only out of the particular very narrow view to which they're accustomed, as do we all, really. We all do that. So the fact that we may not understand other people's approach to life, and we may think our particular way is the only way, should let us put our hand in our mouth and be careful about what we say. The tongue causes a lot of things. Like St. James says, it's like a little flame that can set for a whole forest on fire. Glory and dishonor come from speaking, and a man's tongue is his downfall. Glory and honor and dishonor come from speaking. We can get them both. So we just have to know how to use speaking, texting, writing, all of them. Glory and honor come from speaking, and a man's tongue is his downfall. Who can tame the tongue, says St. James? It is the most difficult thing because we all tend to use it too much. Somebody once said, what is it? Keep silent and people will think you're a fool. Speak and they'll know it. So maybe we better just, you know. A man's tongue is his downfall. But it is so hard. It's a very difficult thing, especially if we care a lot about something. That's why there's so much ferociousness within religious dialogue because everyone cares a lot about what's going on. And it's an important thing. So there tend to be a lot of fire and uh, a lot of downfall in the excessive use of the tongue. Rhetoric can be uh, destructive. We just have to sort of stop. But then when need be, we need to speak. But be very careful about doing it. It's so easy to go astray in that. I think I may have mentioned before, one of my early homilies when I was a deacon, and it was just after the Shah of Iran had, uh, had fallen, his regime went down. I think it was that around then. Anyway, I was talking about, you know, we need to be humble and not be caught up with wealth, sort of like the first part of this. And said, look at the Shah of Iran. He was wealthy and proud and arrogant, and then suddenly, boom, he's kicked out. It was a brilliant idea that came to me halfway through the homily, which is very dangerous, very dangerous. And when I went out to the door at the greeting of the people, a very good parishioner said to me, do you know him personally? I said, no, I don't, I'm afraid, no. Well, how do you know he's arrogant and all these things? Very right. A man's tongue is his downfall. Be deliberate in answering. And probably the bright, clever thing you're thinking is saying, oh, that's a good point. Better not to. Do not be called a slanderer. Do not lie in ambush with your tongue. For shame comes to the thief and severe condemnation to the double-tongued. Do not be a slanderer. Do not lie in ambush with your tongue. We can all do that and just say, Lord, help me not to. Sometimes we have to be critical. It might be part of our, our mission in life or we may need to correct. So it's, it's a judgment call here. We need judgment. And you know when they say, as for common sense, it's not common. So we need to, sometimes we need to use the tongue in a sense sharply in a way because of responsibility. But we've got to be careful. Do we really need to do it? Is it act, does this person I'm talking to actually need to have this information? Is this really, because very often what we do, 
so easy to do it to say, well, you know, this is all for the glory, greater glory of God. I just think I should fill you in on this thing. And we really don't have to, and we can be slanderous, or we can, you know, it's a bad thing to tell something false about someone else. It's a worse thing to tell something truthful. Because the false can be disproved, but if we reveal a truthful thing, it's, it's very, very problematic. Problematic, that's a wishy-washy word, it's deadly. A man's tongue is his downfall. Do not be called a slander. Do not lie in ambush with your tongue. For shame comes to the thief and severe condemnation to the double-tongued. In great or small matters, do not act amiss. And do not become an enemy instead of a friend. For a bad name incurs shame and reproach, and so fares the double-tongued sinner. Everything in life, there are all these little things in life, all these encounters we have. We just got, we, we can't be you know, paranoid about it. Am I going to make a mistake? We all make mistakes. That's why we need to get to confession regularly and try at the end of every day say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But in great and small matters, do not act amiss. And if we, it's sort of like the first part when it says, you know, God doesn't come, I have sinned and sinned and nothing happened. Venial sins are problems too because they wear us away. And we can kind of say, well, that's not too bad. It's not like murder. But in great and small matters, we really have to be attentive because, you know, great things come from small things. And so we need to be consistent consistent and that means great and small do not act amiss and do not become an enemy instead of a friend for a bad name incurs shame and reproach and so fares the double-tongued sinner do not exalt yourself through your soul's counsel lest your soul be torn in pieces like a bull don't exalt yourself because of your understanding or whatever your soul's counsel you know you go up and you come down you be torn to pieces like a bull. You will devour your leaves and destroy your fruit and you will be left like a withered tree. Wow, that's a powerful image. If we get all caught up slicing and dicing other people, either in our minds or in our words, or if we get caught up in this inconsistency, exalting ourselves, all these things he's talking about, what we're doing is withering away. You will devour your leaves and destroy your fruit. We become bitter and heavy and unhappy. Not because of some external circumstance, we'd always be unhappy for many reasons, but heavy and unhappy because there's a bitterness within. That's the thing with anger, which she also mentions earlier on. There's not, nothing wrong with righteous anger that is the sign of the wrath of God, anger against injustice. But the anger that stews within, we stew in the anger, we become sterile and bitter and shriveled up, a withered tree. 
Wouldn't it be awful to look and think I'm a withered tree? There's a great line in one of G.K. Chesterton's stories uh, about, um, well, it's a long, so I won't tell the whole story, but there's a group of, of people, powerful people, 12, they call the 12 fishermen, and uh, the criminal steals their silver and so on. And each of these people is very powerful, but at one point, uh, the Father Brown, the Father Brown stories are great. Father Brown, it says, at this moment, he looked inside and saw his soul as a dried up pea, a withered pea. <laughs> oh, you know, I'd hate, to, wouldn't that be awful? Just look in the mirror and see our souls as a withered tree or a dried up little thing. Spare us from that, O oh Lord. An evil soul will destroy him who has it and make him the laughingstock of his enemies. It's, that's what they, you know, hell is not other people, as some writer once said. No, hell is that inward destruction. An evil soul will destroy him who has it. We choose hell. We choose to be withered. God doesn't want it. God gives us his grace to be loving and moving outward. Heaven is that living in the life of the Blessed Trinity with love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Life-giving, life-giving. Sometimes we see things which are life-giving. And other times people can become, they, can, they have maybe power to destroy, but not to give life. And that's so sad. Life is so short. Why spend a short life being bitter or causing harm or controlling or bashing and smashing or destroying people? Why not just spend time more fruitfully doing good things? An evil soul will destroy him who has it. It's self-destruction, make him the laughingstock of his enemies. And so that's not what we want. And so the next portion Leaving on that note, this is like the perils of Pauline. You'll leave it on this note, the laughing stock of the enemies. But in order not to be that, the next part is a pleasant voice multiplies friends and softens enemies. A gracious tongue multiplies courtesies. And that's where we need to go after this portion. But this part is like the, I guess it could be sort of like you're going to paint a chair. First, you've got to get the old paint off. You've got to get the paint stripper and rub it off and everything. The turpentine and stuff. That's what this passage is. But it's not the whole of the scriptures, but it's very necessary. It's necessary, but not sufficient. So the next portion of Sirach talks about friendship and about love, about generosity. And that's something we need to lead, read as well. Do not set your heart on your wealth, nor say, I have enough. Do not follow your inclination and strength, walking according to the desires of your heart. Do not say, who will have power over me? Or who will bring me down because of my deeds? For God will surely punish you. Do not say, I sinned and what happened to me? For the Most High is slow to anger. Do not be so confident of atonement that you add sin to sin. Do not say, his mercy is great. He will forgive the multitude of my sins. For both mercy and wrath are with him, and his anger rests on sinners. 
Do not delay to turn to the Lord nor postpone it from day to day, for suddenly the wrath of the Lord will go forth and at the time of punishment you will perish. Do not depend on dishonest wealth, for it will not benefit you in the day of calamity. Do not winnow with every wind or follow every path. The double-tongued sinner does that. Be steadfast in your understanding and let your speech be consistent. Be quick to hear and be deliberate in answering. If you have understanding, answer your neighbor. But if not, put your hand on your mouth. Glory and dishonor come from speaking, and a man's tongue is his downfall. Do not be called a slanderer, and do not lie in ambush with your tongue. For shame comes to the thief, and severe condemnation to the double-tongued. In great or small matters, do not act amiss and do not become an enemy instead of a friend. For a bad name incurs shame and reproach, and so fares the double-tongued sinner. Do not exalt yourself through your soul's counsel, lest your soul be torn in pieces like a bull. You will devour your leaves and destroy your fruit and will be left like a withered tree. An evil soul will destroy him who has it and make him the laughingstock of his enemies. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>